0: welcome to the buddha sasana podcast this talk was given by bhikkhu chendita in austin texas We've been discussing the role of the sangha, the monastic community in the sasana in Buddhist society. First, we separated out adept Buddhism from the more free-wheeling, culturally conditioned folk Buddhism, the expert understanding from the commonplace understandings or misunderstandings of the Dharma. And second, we identified the sangha as the upholders of adept Buddhism, appointed by the Buddha himself. By the way, my intention is not to disparage folk Buddhism. We'll talk about folk Buddhism in more detail in future talks. It'll turn out that folk Buddhism plays a critical role in the success of the sasana. Also, by the way, listeners might notice First, that my main concern in these talks is the sasana, Buddhism in society, and second, that both my podcast and my website are called Buddha Sasana. We tend in Western Buddhism to regard Buddhism as a matter of individual or private practice. There is private practice in Buddhism, but even this has a societal context. In fact, the idea of private religion is Western in origin and largely influenced by Protestant Christianity and European Romanticism. Focus on sasana gives us a fuller view of Buddhism. Last week, I began talking about the Buddha's mission statement for the Sangha in 10 bullet points. We discussed the four points that regulate the inner dynamics of the Sangha, and the two that express the individual monastic's commitment to spiritual progress. The remaining four points have to do with the obligations of the monastics to the Sasana, which is to say, to the broader community and the future of Buddhism. The Sangha is responsible for, one, the arousing of faith in the faithless, Two, the increase of the faithful. Three, the establishment of the true dharma. And four, the fostering of discipline, or vinaya. Today, we'll take the arousing of faith in the faithless and the increase of the faithful together. A lot of people think that there is no such thing as faith in Buddhism. It might help if I start by asserting that there is no endorsement of what we normally call blind faith, at least not in the Buddha's early teachings. When we talk about faith in Buddhism, we're talking roughly about trust plus wholeheartedness. I think we all recognize the importance of wholeheartedness in Buddhism. How else are we going to fix our lives? So let's look at trust. We live in a relentlessly uncertain world, yet need to make decisions in that world. It's the rare decision indeed that comes with absolute certitude. Trust is that which bridges the gap between the little we actually know and the plenty we would need to know in order to make a decision of guaranteed outcome. Trust belongs to the nuts and bolts of human cognition. We may try to bring as much discernment as possible into our trust, but in the end, we necessarily make a jump, big or little, into the unknown. In this way, we have entrusted ourselves, for better or for worse, to our babysitters, to our teachers, to our accountant, to TV pundits, to our dentist, to the authority of science, to our marriage partners. And for some few of us to our national leaders. Or we put our trust in alternatives to all of these. We have no choice whether to trust, only who or what to trust, especially under desperate circumstances. Consider, for instance, the following story. The floodwaters were rising and some of the huts at the river's edge were beginning to be swept away. Villagers began to panic as they came face to face with the foolishness of having built their village against a sheer cliff at water's edge. Many of them began running frantically back and then forth along the riverbank beside themselves with indecision some of these overloaded with small children and belongings. Others backed away from the rushing waters, up to the cliffs, looking helpless and forlorn. Those in denial went around their normal business as if this day had brought nothing newsworthy. The chief, ever courageous, emerged from his hut, assessed the situation by scanning the length of the river "'with discerning eyes, grabbed up his youngest daughter in one hand "'and his established staff of authority in the other and shouted, "'Follow me, villagers!' "'He had picked a point along this shore "'at which he plunged boldly and confidently into the water "'at a right angle headed directly for the opposite shore.' He waded deeper and deeper as the water reached his waist and his chest, but his determination remained unaltered. Many others followed immediately behind, holding belongings and frightened children over their heads, leading horses and leashed dogs paddling behind. However, the more timid waited at the shore and watched the chief's progress while others the even more panic stricken continued to run up and down the shore, while others, the flood deniers, went about their normal business, too stunned to note the chief's actions. Gradually, the chief and his closest followers, having nearly disappeared below the waves, began to ascend as they approached the opposite river bank. But by this time, the waters had risen even further. Many of the trailing timid were tragically swept away in the raging waters for having hesitated, followed soon by the panicked and by the deniers. The chief had saved half of the villagers. Of course, none of the villagers knew for sure that they were making the right choice in following the chief. But the problem with waiting for certitude, as many rationalists insist, is that that itself is a choice fraught with uncertainty. In fact, it is a totally uninformed choice. At least the choice of the survivors of the story can be made on the basis of the leader's previous track record in such matters. Our very lives, our soap operatic existences, our desperate circumstances for which we cannot wait for certitude, as we begin Buddhist practice. Many people place trust in a rational mind that can keep its options open until certitude is realized. That is timidity. There is no more discernment in timidity than there is in denial or in blind faith. For in timidity, we invariably fall back into our tacit, unexamined assumptions, the biases and conditioning we inevitably grew up with before we could have recognized what they were. Timidity is, in effect, to place certitude in those biases and conditioning as providing reliable standards for interpreting what lies beyond than to proceed in baby steps from there. Courage is to place our trust elsewhere, even if just as working assumption or thought experiment To see what it feels like, discerning courage is to add reason to this. It is the alliance of trust and discernment that reaches furthest. There's no getting around trust in an uncertain world. Life altering decisions generally arise from a sense of urgency that demands big acts of trust and therefore enormous courage. They are way beyond the reach of the timid who cling fearfully to their servitude. This is the courage of the great explorers of the hippies of yore on a quest in India with nothing but a backpack, and more commonly of the betrothed or the career-bound, stirred by deep longing or by desperation. The Buddhist path fully embraced by one resolve to practice toward awakening will shake one's life to the core, and this will demand particularly courageous trust. Faith is essential for bending our minds around Buddhism, because these are difficult understandings and practices to internalize. Until we understand what it is the Buddha realized, what it is the Buddha taught, and what it is the Sangha has upheld for 100 generations, We cannot be certain where this way of life and practice and the path of practice will lead us. Until we have experienced deeply this way of life and traveled far on the path of practice, we will not understand what the Buddha understood, taught, and entrusted to the Sangha. Therefore, until we have experienced this way of life and traveled far on this path, We require faith to nourish our Buddhist aspirations and practice. Faith is what first turns our heads towards virtue, wisdom, and peace. In summary, faith in Buddhism actually depends on a level of trust that we apply to everything we do in any case, but to that we add wholeheartedness. It's not blind faith. In fact, it is provisional through Buddhist practice, What we at first accept on faith, we later see for ourselves, at which point faith is no longer necessary. The three pillars of faith in Buddhism are called the three refuges or the triple gem. We have faith in three sources of Buddhist wisdom, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. We'll talk about the refuges in an upcoming talk, but for now we're interested in the Sangha. In order to arouse faith in the faithless and to increase the number of the faithful, monastics must instill trust and wholeheartedness. Two ways in which this occurs are one, through teaching, and two, by way of example. Traditionally, these have been possible because the Sangha has lived in close contact with the larger community. This is particularly ensured because the Buddha made them completely dependent on alms, which they must receive daily by hand from the laity. This contact is thereby a constant factor in community life and is supplemented when farmers and craftspeople visit the monasteries to receive further instruction or to receive advice on how to approach life's challenges from a dharmic perspective. In this way, the laity receives teachings and witnesses for themselves in the Sangha, constant breathing examples of what it is to live a Buddhist life. Its members are walking science experiments, demonstrating with every word and gesture what happens when one lets go, when one renounces everything that common sense says is is necessary for felicity, For fun, for fulfillment. The empirical result is that one either quits or one ends up being among the most joyfully contented people in the village. The noble ones serve as a reality check for folk people as they make life's decisions and a subversively and radically civilizing influence on the whole community. They display firsthand the peace and happiness, wisdom and compassion that result from complete immersion in the Buddhist life. The noble ones are close at hand. They teach. They inspire with their deportment, their good works, and their knowledge. They inspire self-reflection concerning one's own life and tend to melt samsadic tendencies. They are adepts consulted as authorities to which less informed buddhists will defer when dharmic questions arise they thereby constrain popular speculative views of dharma with a firm anchor in the practice and understanding of the noble ones the noble ones among the monastics in particular are the most qualified teachers the adepts the most admirable friends who impart the Dharma, both verbally and bodily, through explanation and by example. What they explain is very deep, very sophisticated, and very difficult to grasp without equally deep practice. Sangha members individually gain reputations for their teaching or humanitarian work, for their inspiring meditation practice, or for their scrupulous observance of monastic discipline. There has generally been the assumption that the Sangha stands apart qualitatively. This is the excellence it is charged with maintaining. What happens when the monastics no longer live up to the standards the Buddha demanded of them? As I said in a previous talk, all institutions leak. Some even gush. The Sangha is an institution, historically the best institution, but it leaks here and there as well. The Vinaya, the Buddhist monastic code, is full of examples of this from the Buddha's time, serving as warnings to the Sangha of how not to behave. The Buddha was also careful to include advice to protect the reputation of the Sangha from the appearance of misbehavior. But ultimately, the laity can be the judge. If the laity is not inspired by the Sangha, they stop offering it alms. It's that simple. The Sangha has no coercive power over the laity, except to withhold teachings or to refuse alms from wayward individuals. The laity can shut down the local Sangha at any time. The Sangha can be helpful to the laity in many ways, also simply through good works, such as education or organizing social service projects. These are simply examples of generosity, the primary Buddhist practice for devout monastics and devout lay people alike. It's interesting, though, in this regard, what the Buddha prohibited monastics from doing for the laity priestly functions. Blessings, fortune-telling, magical rites, even conducting marriages. He did not want monks to be priests. That is what the Brahmins are for. Of course, with time, monks have taken on priestly functions in all Buddhist lands that I'm aware of that don't have Brahmin priests. This is apparently by popular demand a kind of pressure that comes from folk Buddhism, which we'll talk about in future talks. We've been drawing parallels between the Sangha and the scientific community at each bullet point of the Sangha's mission statement. At inspiring faith, the parallel is not as clear because the relationship of the scientist to the layperson is different from that of the monk. Most people do not have first-hand daily contact with scientists. However, scientists are very much concerned with the reputation of their profession, and the volume and continuous product of their results certainly inspire faith in science, most particularly in the production of technology, including the wonderful gadgets that now fill our homes, cars, and pockets, along with popular published outreach in the media. Scientists are popularly regarded as the experts to whom others defer, thereby countering popular speculative views of science with the solid anchor of scientific research, inhibiting the former from devolving into pure fantasy. Okay, we'll stop here. In the next weeks, we'll finish looking at the Buddha's mission statement for the Sangha specifically the perpetuation of the true Dharma and the true Vinaya.